Amen. All right, so um, lesson 66, I've called this rapture or return. And uh, I know we've been through this before, right? But people just kind of miss it. And the other thing is because there are so many voices out there right now teaching various ways of understanding, um, talk about it in times, uh, the order of the events gets confusing, so that's why I want you to have that chart. Uh, we're going to talk about that here in just a minute. And so, um, but here's, some, I put these questions at the top, and these are some of the things that get asked to me, things that I hear. Aren't the rapture and the return the same thing? Our basic answer is no, no and we'll see why. All right, because that's their next question. Well, tell me why. So, here we go. Uh, is it true the word rapture is not even in the Bible? Yes. 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 But we'll talk about that. Then why do we believe in one? Yeah. So, which comes first, chicken or the egg? No. Which comes first, tribulation or the rapture? All right, we'll go to that. Are we in the tribulation? No. Thank God. Yeah. Right? And never will be. And finally, does the church set up the millennium? No. Does it really matter what we believe? Yeah, yeah it does. Otherwise, the Bible wouldn't have taught it. So, as I've made the statement before, uh, the Apostle Paul taught about uh, the Lord's coming in numbers of his letters, or he would mention something about it. Uh, John does. Peter does. Uh, of course, we've got the four Gospels when Jesus talked about it. So if they all felt that it was important to communicate, then I think we should, right? And if there is so much volume of Scripture dedicated to the second coming, to the Lord's return, to those things. I, I just went through in the last two lessons about one-third of the Old Testament passages that talk about the Lord's return. That's, that's, I didn't even touch on the book of Daniel or Ezekiel, chapters after chapters in Ezekiel. Things that are important, even in the Psalms, the Lord's return is mentioned. So this is an important principle because God never intended this world to stay the way it is in its fallen state. He is going to come back and he is going to deal with unrighteousness, sin and rebellion. He is going to deal with Satan and all of his fallen angels and he is going to deal with sin. All those things are going to be taken care of. And then God is going to restore this earth to a glorious way that he intended it to be created. So all those things that were before the fall uh, will be restored in what we think of as the millennium. So we'll see how that all fits. But um, 
the point being that so much is given to talk about it, why doesn't a lot of the church teach it? And why are we so confused? Some of the confusion comes from the fact that we want to interpret things our way. And so we need to be open to adjust what we're seeing and, and accept what the Bible says about something, even if it means, I don't understand that. Now, I know it frustrates you, but I've done that several times as we've gone through the book of Revelation. There's things I cannot figure out how they're going to fit. I can't figure out how exactly some things will take place. I don't know how an eagle flying through the sky can be heard in the entire world at the same time. I don't know how that happens. I don't know how the entire world can see one angel flying over and, uh, and communicating the gospel. Uh, how does that happen? I don't know. So there are many things in the scriptures that in some ways still remain what we call a mystery. Now, a mystery is not Perry Mason or Agatha Christie. A mystery in the, in the New Testament issue was something that you just haven't been informed about yet. It's, there's, there are clues that you have to have in order to understand. So there's the mystery of, uh, the mystery of godliness. That is the incarnation. The incarnation is an incredibly deep, theologically uh, intriguing in some ways, but confusing in other ways. Understanding three persons, one God, Jesus Christ, God, man. How does that all work? There's some of it we just don't get. So Paul says, Great is the mystery of godliness. Another thing that's great is the mystery of Christ and his church. How the whole relationship between Christ and his church exists. And another mystery that's mentioned is one we're going to talk about, the mystery of the rapture. The calling away of God's people. Now, I don't have all of the scriptures in your notes tonight that we want to be looking at. So if you've got a Bible... That's the preferred method. If you have a device, that's the secondary method, right? <laughs> Bibles, still Bibles trump uh, electronics, uh, at least in my, in my world. And you're in my world. No. So we will be looking at a number of things. So let's open with these two passages right here at the beginning, because these set these two things uh, the rapture or the return. And, you know, as we, we read these, we see that there's two different things. Are they talking about the same thing? And if they are, how can it be? So let's read them. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, Paul says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. The word asleep simply means dead. Those who have died... We're no longer alive. He's going to call them dead here in just a few minutes. About those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. So 
we have our brothers and sisters who have passed. I did two funerals in just the last week. And you know, we have friends, relatives, those who have gone. They are, they are dead, but they're called asleep. Why? Because their status is not permanent. It's temporal. It's just like somebody's asleep, they're going to wake up. So these are going to awake. Verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Boy, there's a, I, I just love the simplicity that say we believe that Jesus died and rose again. There it is. That's the gospel in a nutshell. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, through Jesus, in other words, as he returns, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And so God is going to bring those who have died in the Lord, he's going to bring them with him. Where are they now? Well, they must be in God's presence. And so they are in the presence of the Lord. Do we know a lot about that? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us a lot about what heaven is like right now. It tells us what heaven's going to be like in the rapture because we got pictures of that. It tells us about what heaven's going to be like in the new heaven and the new earth because we got two chapters that are about that. But it doesn't tell us a whole lot about what heaven is like right now. But we know that it's a place of peace. It's a place of, of release. Paul says, you know, to, to, to live as Christ, uh, to die, <laughs> that's even better. And so it's better than living. And uh, we know that Paul says also that, you know, if I, I am in this body, I groan to be released because to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. So whatever present with the Lord is like, that's what heaven is like. Now, what we have, though, is people who have had visions, who have had maybe even an experience of death and come back to, come back to life, and they share with us some things about heaven. But that's not the Bible. Those are good things. Please, I'm not discounting anybody's vision or dream or experience. I'm just saying they're not the Bible. What does the Bible say? It's so f searching for what the Bible says about those things is the most secure way. But Paul says those are those who have fallen asleep. What what's what's the issue here? Well, what's happened is the Thessalonians, between the time Paul taught them about what was going to be the Lord's coming, but before the Lord's coming would be the tribulation, and before the tribulation would be the rapture of the church. And so he taught them about that, but now they've kind of forgotten, and they've also had other people come in and tell them, well, you know, the people that have sleep, they're gone. If they didn't live till Jesus returns, they're not going to make it. Or the Lord came back, and you're left here, and so you're not going. Um, no. Thank God, that's not going to be the truth. So he says, I don't want you to be uninformed. And he's going to continue this all the way through chapter 5. We're not going to go that far. Verse 15, for this we declare by a word from the Lord. So here Paul is saying, I got this from God. Well, now we got people today, they say, I get this from God. Well, that may be true. And I believe in 
receiving things from God. I believe in words of knowledge, words of wisdom. I believe in prophecy, but it does not replace Scripture. All right, Scripture is preeminent. A word from the Lord. What Paul received is absolute truth. That we who are alive and are left, kind of look at that word left or circle it in your notes if you like to circle things, but the word left is actually the Greek word which means left behind. So we get the name of the movie or books or whatever, left behind. Those of us who are left behind. In other words, like Paul says later in the book of Philippians, because Thessalonians was written before Philippians, but all right. Um, what Paul's going to say later, he says, you know, uh, I have made my determination to live is Christ, but to die is more. And so he says, I'm caught between two things, whether to go on living here or to leave and be with Christ, which he says is actually better. But you know what's better for you is better that I stay. So I'll stay. Thank you, Paul. Because at that point, he hadn't written some of the letters that we're glad that he wrote. So Paul is saying, you know, that we, we are, in a sense, left behind until the coming of the Lord. We'll not precede those who have fallen asleep. Or as we don't get to go, and they have to stay in the grave, because they didn't live long enough for Jesus to return. He said, we're not going to proceed. We're not going to be better. We're not going to have a better position. Verse 16, for the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead, there we have the clue to what means sleep is also the same word as dead. The dead in Christ will rise first. In other words, those who are in the grave get their bodies first. They will rise first. This is the resurrection of the saints, a resurrection of the believers. And they will rise first. Then we who are alive and left behind will be caught up together. I like that word caught up. Actually, the verb will be caught up. Will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Encourage one another with these words. So this is to be an encouraging thing. This is something that is to uh, give us confidence, give us peace, give us hope that no matter what we're facing, uh, the Lord's return hasn't happened and we've been left behind. But neither will we get to go first. And those who have died, you know, they didn't live long enough. Sorry, you just didn't make it. So you don't get to go. No, that's not going to happen either. The reality is the Lord is going to descend. The dead in Christ rise first. Now, I've said this, you know, and other people have heard me use this story before, but I was driving down to Florahaven. Uh, we were to finish the memorial service here at the church, and we were on our way down there to do a graveside service. And, and I was riding in the coach with it was Jack Hayhurst. And uh, we're riding down there, and I'm driving by, and I thought, this is where I want to be on the day of the rapture. Because I want to see all those people who are in the graves come out. <laughs> then I get my body. 
I just, I just want to see it. Wow. You know how absolutely incredible would that be? Yeah. So, so I share that. Then Al Poncel comes along and says, no, I'd rather be in the grave. Then I get to experience it. I thought, yeah, that's good, too. So here's the point. One way or the other, either we're going to see them come out or we're going to experience it. But that's the message of what God has for us. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to come back and we're going to talk about that word caught up. All right. Now, let's go down to Revelation 19, bottom of your page. And here we are all the way toward almost to the end of the book of Revelation, 66 lessons into the book of Revelation. All right. Revelation 19. We've been through all of the seals, then through the trumpets, then through the pouring out of the vials, through the destruction of, of Babylon, both the religious system, the harlot of Babylon, and the um, financial empire. Then we saw the full destruction of his kingdom and his powers. We're going to see here within this chapter, in the next couple of lessons, the full destruction and binding of Satan for a thousand years. I mean, this is going to be good stuff. All right, so here we have in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, John says, And then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Who is this person? Uh, we call him Jesus. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen. I wonder who these people are. That would be us. White and pure were following him on white horses. Verse 15, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So, any difference between that and the first passage? Uh, yeah, there's a lot. There's battle, there's blood, there's judgment, there's all those things. And up above, there's just this glorious, either you're in the grave and come out, or you're alive and are changed. And you're present with the Lord, and that's it. So, yeah, big differences in these two things. Now, that chart that I gave you, that's what I wanted you to uh, hold on to. Okay, so on the chart, and the reason I, I used this, this chart and I finally found one that I really liked and downloaded it, so is the good spacing that is here. It's not got 
too much information on it, but there's enough here that we can see structure. But we can also, enough room that you can make some notes if you want to and write some other things in uh, if that's the way you want to go. All right? So notice all the way on the right-hand side, right, all the way on the right, the church age. Well, the right is I'm showing it up here, but it's actually your left. All right? So all the way here is the church age. And the church age is an arrow that goes back. Where does it go back to? When did the church age start? Pentecost. Pentecost, right? The church started on Pentecost. So the church age goes all the way back to Pentecost and goes up to what time? The rapture. And so that is what we call the church age. Now, Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and said, in these last days, uh, Peter, you sure you got that right? Because it's been... Mm, what, 2,000 years? But then, Peter took care of that for us later on. He said, you know, one day is just 1,000 years, and 1,000 years is a day. So it's just been, it's just been two days. How about that? I can, I can remember what happened two days ago. 2,000 years ago? All right, I know I just had a birthday, but I'm not that old. Right. 2,000 years ago was a whole different thing. And so lots of, but he called it last days. What? If we're in the last days, how come it's been years? It's been two millennia, not two, two days. But that's the church age. And the church age is going to be as long as what? Oh, who said that? Kathy, you get the you get the price tonight. As long as God wants it, I like the phrasing of that. As long as God wants it to be, because God knows when the last person that's going to receive Him has received Him, and that's done. His foreknowledge comes before all of our guessing, all of our work, all of our effort. It's not up to us; it's up to us just to simply do what God has given us to do. The disciples said, Jesus, tell us, tell us when, when are you coming back? When are you going to get us all, all this settled out? Tell us when your kingdom starts. Is that going to be, you know, what are we talking? Two or three days? Jesus said, you know what? Forget about it. It's not your deal. You don't need to worry about that. Here's what I want you to do. Be a witness. The Spirit of God's going to come upon you. And you will be a witness. Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria, the rest of the world. Uttermost parts of the world. Take the gospel. Get busy till I come. I had a friend. He, he, did a, he did a little cartoon one time. You know how... Anyway, in an office, grouping, whatever, the boss comes out. Everybody says, get busy, boss is coming, right? So you get busy. Well, can I just say, get busy, the boss is coming. So we, we, got, we got things we need to do. I know not everybody's saved yet, 
But I don't know that it won't be done by the middle of tonight. We could wake up in heaven. It could all be over. Say, well, no, no, according to my prophecy charts and things that I've listened to, it's not going to happen because this hasn't happened yet. Are you telling me that in all the years since Pentecost, it couldn't have happened until today? No. That's where we have to realize that the way God sees things and the way we understand things are not exactly the same. As I said last week, we see through a glass darkly. And I can't think of some of the, some, a place that there is more of that than maybe in relationship to prophecy. We think this applies to this. But you know what? Better preachers than me, <laughs> better preachers than we have today, down through the centuries have believed that was the end. This Jesus is coming back now. One of those was a man named Paul. Because he said, we who are alive and remain. He fully expected it to happen in his life. He didn't say, those who are alive and remain. He didn't say, they will be changed. We will all be changed. We will all be changed. So, Paul had that ever-present. Jesus could have come back in Paul's day. How would that mess up your prophecy charts? Like, well... I don't know. No, the, the Gog Magog thing hadn't happened yet. It's like we got, we got this to come in. And I wouldn't have been alive. Yeah. But here's what I'm saying we need to live expectantly. And if I'm going to live expecting the Lord to come, then I have to live ready to tell, to be a witness. You say, are we ever going to stop talking about that? Being a witness, being a witness? No. Because that's what Jesus said. How many of you filled with the Spirit? How many have the Holy Spirit? That's why you have the Holy Spirit, to be a witness. Oh, no, I got the Holy Spirit so I can pray in tongues and lay hands on the sick. And Yeah, you do. But you have the Holy Spirit to be a witness. That's what he said. Okay, I'll stop messing around and just get on with my lesson. Let's look at the order of events. The top of your page two, I got several things that I, I put down there. And so we can see how some of these things um, fit within uh, this, this map. So all the way on the left, you've got the church age, right? So you got the church age. And uh, it goes along until... God has determined that it's time for the rapture. You can't pray for it. You can't believe for it. You can't work for it. You can't make it happen sooner. All we can do is trust God. Live in our day. And this is what we call the rapture. The as it says at the top, there's the word rapture going up, but then at the top it says catching away of the church. See that phrase, catching away? Again, we'll come back to that in a little bit. <laughs> of the church, resurrection of all who have died previously in Christ. So this is what happened back in that passage in 
First Thessalonians chapter four. Um, the dead in Christ rise; they are given their glorified bodies. There's another chapter that talks about that. First Corinthians chapter fifteen. Um, we can see more about how that happens, but uh, the they receive a glorified body. We who are alive receive a glorified body. Why? So that we can live in eternity with God. Our bodies will be changed into His, the same as His glorious body. He's still God, we're still man, but we will have a glorified body. And we'll again look at that a little bit more in Philippians chapter 3 in a bit. And so then we enter into what is called the tribulation. The church is taken out, same as what happens in Revelation chapter 4. In Revelations 2 and 3, it's church, 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 church. Over and over the church, over and over the church. God speaks to the church. Hear what the Spirit says to the church. Suddenly, Revelation chapter 4, God said, come up here. And John was gone. And the next thing you know, he sees this glorious vision of heaven. And uh, everything changes. And the word church is not found again until we get all the way to chapter 20 before we see the church again. So, what happened? What we call the tribulation. The tribulation is Jewish time. I'm not going back to the whole Daniel thing. I get confused when I try to add up all the numbers. I'm not a mathematician. But... There were a number of weeks that God had given them, but there was one week missing, right? So God had given them 70 weeks, but there'd only been 69. In 69 weeks, the Messiah would die, right? And so in the 69th week, and so there's one week left. Now that week is years. So 70 years from the time of this event, anybody know what the event was? From the, no, not just 70 years, because it's been much more than 70 years. It was more than that. It was 70 years from the time that Antiochus Epiphanes sacrificed the pig on the altar, right? The abomination of desolation. And then they would count the 70 years. And so this 70-year space, but in the 69th year, he was cut off. And so then... You have this another whole week of years. And so you've got all these different things happening. All of this church age. But what happened to that last week? We got another week of years left. That's seven years. What are we going to do with that? Well, we're going to have to experience it. And we're going to experience it in what's called the tribulation. Where are we going to be? With the Lord. All right. So the rapture, we go up. And we are, as it said at the end of uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 18, uh, in there verse 17, it says, And so we will always be with the Lord. Always means, it's a great Greek word, means always. Yeah. So we will always be with the Lord. And so once we are there, we are there. Now, things are going to change, 
But we will never change in our status. We are forever in the presence of the Lord. All right? Through all the rest of eternity. Now, the other thing that happens at that time is something we'll talk about again, something that will come up later, is the Bema seat. That is the judgment seat of Christ. Notice the word Bema. Bema seat. Bema in the Greek word uh, was for a a platform on which you gave rewards or rebuke. It wasn't a place of judgment. It wasn't like you were being judged and sent to prison or whatever. It could be a public rebuke for something that you've done publicly, or it could be a public reward. It could be a military reward. It could be a, a, a um, athletic reward. The Olympics were given on the Bema. Right, and so they brought the people up, and they gave them their award there. So the bema has to do with receiving of rewards. We're back to First Corinthians chapter three. If you want to write that down, First Corinthians chapter three, and the verses that talk about that in there, starting around verse twelve, and he talks about how we will receive reward: gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, or stubble. Wood, hay, or stubble is not so good. Gold, silver, precious stone, that's what we want. Why? Because there's going to be a fire that's going to burn. And gold, silver, and precious stone get purified. Wood, hay, and stubble get burned up. Yeah. And so things that we do that are not pleasing to the Lord, things that we do that are not in fulfilling his purpose, things we do out of a wrong motive or a wrong heart, we want attention from the people, and we're serving, but we're only doing it to get attention, or we're mishandling the people of God, or we're deceiving people. Um, I know Christians don't do those things, but some people do. Anyway, um, those are wood, hay, and stubble, and that gets burned up. But the gold, silver, and precious stone come through. Now, Paul says very clearly at the end of that section, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, at the end of that section, he says, yet though the rewards are burned up, the person is saved as by fire. Right? So you lose your rewards, but you're in heaven forever. Okay, that's a glorious thing. All right? Just no rewards to show what you did for the Lord. All right? So... This is, uh, this is the purpose of the Bema Seat. And during this period of time, starting from the time that the church leaves the earth, then Jesus begins opening the seals. Right? So there's this time in heaven, and then the seals begin to be opened. And as he's opening one seal after another, different things come about. This is the time of, notice in the black box, the rise of the Antichrist. And so this is, is the time the Antichrist is rising in his power, his position. He somehow gets, gets the attention of Israel. Uh, they kind of think he's a pretty good guy. Um, they make peace with different ones, and there seem to be going on. But also you read in, in Revelation chapter 6, uh, there's horrible things going on in the earth at the same time. So all of this is happening. Somehow in the midst of all of that, he gets to build a new temple in Jerusalem, which means he's got to take down the Dome of the Rock, the Muslim temple, and, and the other 
holy temple that sits on top of that platform, two of the most holy sites in all of Islam, he's got to take those down in order to build his temple on top of that. How in the world is he going to do that? Because he is the Antichrist. He's a rising power. Somehow he brings about a unity. The Bible never describes how he's going to do that. You know why? Because Islam didn't exist at the time of the Bible. Not till 600 years after Christ. So these, these things are going to be done. How it's going to happen, I can't tell you. But you know what? I'm going to be up here. Watching. Great, great seats. Right? This is not the nosebleed section, you know, where you can't even see what's going on in the stadium. This, you know, what we're going to have in heaven? Puts Jerry's house to shame. So, this is the seven years that's called the tribulation. Tribulation is simply a, a word which means trouble, trial, pressure. And who's the pressure against? Not us. We're gone. Who's the pressure against? Yeah, the world. The Jews. The people of God. This is the Jews' tribulation. This is their time. What God is trying to do is to get their attention. Receive me as Messiah. Now, the beautiful thing is, as God is doing that with Israel and doing his best to draw them to himself and to open their hearts and open their minds, as he's doing that to draw his people and to bring them to himself, he's also bringing thousands upon thousands upon millions of non-Jews to salvation. Multitudes of people. Millions will be receiving him. Some because the judgments that are falling. Some because they remember what we told them. Family members who weren't believers. When we got raptured, suddenly they've got our Bible. With all those outlines and handouts and, and underlinings. And, oh, I'm sorry, you've got a device. You don't have a Bible to leave behind. Ah, uh, Okay, I'm messing with you, but you know what? Here's a reason. The electronic stuff can go away in an instant. It goes away in an instant. I'm, you know, I shared this the other day with our, with our legacy class on Sunday uh, in, in China right now. They are the study Bible that I used to teach them for um, 12 years. I went over there, 18 trips to China teaching these pastors how to use a study Bible. I wrote a program um, to teach the pastors how to, to find references in the scriptures, how to compare references, how to, do, how to use a concordance, how to cross-reference things, how to use the notes that are at the bottom of the page. I taught them how to do all those things. Uh, I don't know how many thousand ministers God gave me the opportunity uh, to share that with. And we distributed tens of thousands of these Bibles. Well, that Bible is now out of print. And before the copyright can be renewed and be reprinted, Premier Jing has said, I want it redone. And so he wants the Bible rewritten to reflect communist 
Chinese philosophy. Rewriting the Bible. You know, people have tried to destroy the Bible. We've had some bad translations of the Bible, but this is a rewriting of the Bible. So that, so that the Bibles that will be being printed to give to pastors do not reflect the true gospel of Jesus Christ. However, the group that Jonathan contracts with who provides the Bibles for us, he has a warehouse that's got a lot of these Bibles of the first edition still printed. And we will do everything we can to get those into the hands of Chinese pastors. So, going back to what's going to happen here, people are going to hear the gospel. If tens of thousands of, of people in a city just suddenly disappear, that's going to get some people's attention. Plus, then God brings forth 144,000 Jewish witnesses who are ministering, the two prophets who come and they minister. Then there's the angel flying through the air declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so there's some glorious things happening. Millions of people receiving Jesus Christ during the time of the tribulation. But it's Jacob's trouble. It's what it's called in the Old Testament. Several places they call it the time of Jacob's travail or Jacob's trouble. And the purpose is to bring them to Christ, to open their eyes to receive him as their Messiah. So that brings us through, in the middle of the tribulation uh, comes uh, the abomination of desolations when Satan, Antichrist, actually takes over, sets himself up as God, demands that all worship be given to him, and so then the wrath of God is begin to be poured out in the last three and a half years, judgment after judgment after judgment. We went through those chapters. It's dark. It's, it's not pleasant to read. But what it is is God removing all of the rebellion and the evil from the earth so that he can bring forth his perfect plan. At the end of the time of the tribulation is the Battle of Armageddon, and that's where we are in Revelation 19. So we come up to this time of the Battle of Armageddon and the Lord's return. And so uh, we, we see that there is a great now judgment falling upon all the nations of the earth that come to do battle with the Lord. And so that brings us uh, to this period of time. So let's go again look at our notes and what I want you to see on that chart is four time periods. Uh, we've talked about those already, but look at the time periods. There is the church age. There is the church age. The, there is the tribulation. There is the millennium, right? The thousand year or messianic kingdom. And then there is new heaven and new earth. Eternity. All right. So four different time periods. Each time period ruled by different principles. There's different ways that things are done and different issues that are uh, at play. All right? And we'll see some of that as we continue. Um, then there are three different judgments. 
So again, you look at the the chart, you got the judgment of the rewards, the Bema seat, right? Then you've got the judgment that comes of the nations, and the judgment of the nations takes place during the time of the millennium, where all the nations of the earth have to come and declare um, worship, obedience, service to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who sits upon a physical throne upon the earth, and all the nations of the world must come and bow down before him, and those who will not it says he will rule them as a, um, as a, as a, with a rod of iron. All right. So he will, therefore, rule over all of that or any rebellion that takes place. And so there is that judgment. And then, following the time of the millennium, at the very end, is Satan's rebellion, and he leads a rebellion. He's released, leads rebellion. God brings the final judgment. <laughs> and then sets up what is called the white throne judgment. And that comes at the end of the millennium, just before we go into the new heaven and the new earth. Then also there are three resurrections that you can see on there. There is the resurrection first of the church, resurrection of the church aid believers, um, both the dead in Christ and those who are remaining. Then there is the the. Uh, resurrection of the tribulation saints, the Jews and the Gentiles, up here in this blue box. So at the end of the tribulation, after the Lord's return, then there is a resurrection of all the Old Testament saints and all of the martyrs who died during the time of the tribulation. Now, their spirit and soul have been in heaven, but they will receive glorified bodies. And so they will forever be in the presence of the Lord. But that's their resurrection. And then there's one final resurrection. And it's kind of a different kind of resurrection. This is the resurrection of all the dead. Unbelieving dead. All of those who never accepted Christ from all time. And they will be raised to stand before the white throne judgment. None of them will pass they will all be cast into the lake of fire. Because the white throne judgment is based on your works, and by works shall no one be saved. All right? And so that's what comes at the end, and then, of course, the new heaven and the new earth. All right. So this little table I've got down at the bottom of the page, just some things I wrote down to show some of the differences between the rapture the catching away, and the return, the second coming. So we have the passage from 1 Thessalonians, the Lord himself will descend with a cry, a command, with the voice of the archangel, a sound of the trumpet. The dead in Christ will rise first, then those who are alive who have been left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so shall we always be with the Lord. That's the rapture. Then we look over to the next table, or to the right, and we see the return. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on a white horses. There he's coming down, and the saints are where? With him. And so they are following him. Uh, Jude verse 14 also says, It was also about those that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. 
And so this is the Lord coming down. Now, in the rapture, the Lord arrives. I chose that word, arrives, right? The Lord arrives, and we are caught up together to meet him. And the saints go with him, and he takes us forever into his presence. At the return, they're all coming with him from heaven. So there is a different direction from which the saints are moving, and the Lord is moving. In his first, in his first arrival, which we call the rapture. Now, I use the word arrival. It's a Greek word, parousia, and it simply means to, to show up. Right, to arrive. You all arrived here tonight. All right, so it was just an arrival. It, it's simply a Greek word which means to arrive at someone's house, to come um, to your friend, to arrive at, at court, to arrive at the marketplace, whatever. Uh, parousia. So Jesus is going to arrive, but he's going to uh, kind of stop in midair, and all of the dead are raised from the graves, and those who are alive are changed, go to join him, and then are taken away. Now, the word used for us going to join him is the word caught up. All right, we talked about that before, but the word caught up, look at the second uh, box down under rapture. Uh, the Greek word is harpagmus, which means to be caught up, or to be taken, or to be seized. See, rapture is a word which comes from Latin. When the, the Latin people, the Romans, saw this word harpagmus, they said, well, that's the same as our Latin word, rapturo, from which we get the word rapture. So they translated the Greek to Latin, from which we get the word rapture. So when you, somebody tells you the word rapture is not in the Bible, say, you're right, it isn't, because I don't have a Latin Bible. If I had a Latin Bible, it's right there. But I don't have a Latin Bible. I don't even have a Greek Bible. I've got an English Bible. So they translate this word, caught up. It's the same word that's used. Remember Philip, as he was ministering in the desert? Philip the Evangelist, Acts chapter 8. And he's out there ministering in the desert, and he ministered to the eunuch, to the eunuch and the eunuch got saved. And then all of a sudden, it says, and eunuch, or Philip was suddenly caught away. Next thing you know, he's in the city called Azotus or someplace like that. It's like, what happened? It's the same Greek word used there. All of a sudden, he was here, and he's gone, and he's someplace else. It's the same Greek word that's used there, herpogmos. It means to seize something, uh, to take. You know what Jesus is going to do? He's going to come down here, and he's going to jerk us right out of here. You know, the devil can try to resist. The world can try to hold us. The world can say you can't go. People can say... I don't believe in the rapture. It can't be happening. Sorry, you're going. You know, if you believe in Jesus, you're going. Um, but there are, there are people who say, well, there's no such thing as a rapture. You'll find out somewhere about 20,000 feet in the air. You'll change your mind. I, I, yeah. But, of course, only the believers are taken. Everybody else is left. There's going to be a lot of people. But there's a lot of us that are just suddenly going to disappear. And that is going to somehow awaken people's hearts. I believe there'll be great, great revival right after the rapture. Now, on the other side, the return, 
the Greek word that's used there is the word appearance. Epiphania, right? So you see that there in your notes, second box down, epiphania. And epiphania is a Greek word for an appearance. It's the same word that's used in Jesus' first coming. He came first as what? A baby. A baby. That was his first appearance. That's why we call Christmas Epiphany. If you've never heard that in any kind of traditional church or more formal church, liturgical churches, they use this word. They use that a lot. Epiphany. An epiphany simply means the arrival. He's here. And so uh, it's an appearance. It's a, a manifestation. You could touch him. You could feel him. Right? And so he came once that way. Then he was going away. The angel told the apostles, after they watched him go, they said, he's going to come again. The same way you saw him go, he's going to come again, right from the clouds. And he's going to. And so we can read this word. I put a number of references down there where you can see this word used in reference to the Lord's coming. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 Timothy 6, 2 Timothy 4, Titus chapter 2. All of those are references to this word in making reference to the Lord's coming, the second coming, all right, his physical appearance, his manifest appearance. The next box down says he arrives to take away the believers. At the return, he arrives to destroy all the enemies. Big difference. Big difference. The next box down. In the rapture, the believers meet him in the air. We are caught up together to meet him in the air. Us, the dead in Christ, together, meet him in the air. But in his second coming, he actually stands upon the Mount of Olives, and when he touches it, it splits in two from the Dead Sea all the way to the Mediterranean Ocean. Right, and so that all takes place. Uh, top of the next page, just these boxes. You can read these references for yourself. In his rapture, his arrival is known only to the believers. Doesn't, it doesn't really even say, we see him coming. I know it says there's a sound of a trumpet, but I don't know if we hear the trumpet or not doesn't say that. It just says there is a trumpet. But when he comes in the second coming, every eye will see him. He shines lightning from east to west. He will be seen. In the rapture, the believers receive resurrection bodies. We are given a glorified body, and there's some scripture references to read about that. And we receive a body that is not subject to this fallen world, it's not subject to sin, it's not subject to decay. But in the second coming, he comes to rule. Or, I'm sorry, um, all who oppose rejected him will be slain. So, the rapture is better. We get resurrection bodies. The second coming is not so good. If you resisted him, you will be slain. Under the rapture, he arrives to take us to be with him forever. In the second coming, he comes to rule on the earth for a thousand years. 
In the rapture, the earth enters into the tribulation. In the second coming, Satan is bound for a thousand years. In the rapture, there's no judgment on the earth. Only the saints will know as we are caught up to be with him. In the second coming, Christ sets up his throne on the earth and rules from Jerusalem for a thousand years. And then finally, in the, second, or in the rapture, there are no supernatural signs on the earth. It never mentions anything about some sign, something happening, whatever. It's just suddenly we are gone. However, in the second coming, there's all kinds of signs. The moon is turned to blood. The sun is darkened. There's the stars fall from the heavens. There's all manners of incredibly deep darkness. There's earthquakes and all manners of things happening. And of course, there is a valley filled with the blood of those who came to oppose him. And that's kind of where we'll take up next week. That sounds exciting, huh? <laughs> Boy. I don't know what I'm going to call my message next week. The days of blood. I don't know. But anyway, great day of blood. But it's going to be, it's God's judgment. Why is he judging? To remove sin. This creation has been crying out for that since the fall. All creation groans, waiting for that day. And so God has purposed that he is going to bring forth that day. Why? So that he can bring us to himself. That's what it's all about. And forever to remove all the evil from off the earth. So that kind of puts some things in order. hope that helps a little bit review. Um, so next week we'll look at the actual details that it says in Revelation about his coming. Fill in a little bit from some other passages of the, of the uh, New Testament, Old Testament, but most of it we'll just concentrate on what the book of Revelation says. All right? So, Father, we thank you uh, that your word is alive for us. Father, we thank you for the promise that you made that you will take us to yourself, that where you are, we may be forever. I thank you, Father God, that you made a promise. You would deliver us from the coming wrath. I thank you, Father God, we will not experience that, but Father, we will see your goodness, your glory manifest as you bring about your purpose and plan and bring forth the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father God, for the work that you do in our hearts, in our lives, and through us to reach others for this joy of salvation that we have already received. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.